Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss the risk of COVID-19 in children. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today, he will be interviewing Dr. Maddie Travers, a public health consultant and co-founder and lead sleep trainer at Littlest Learners. So, Dr. Allwater and Maddie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, uh, Faith, and I'm delighted that Maddie's been able to uh, join us. Uh, and share some of her perspectives um, regarding the pandemic, especially children, which I think has been one of the more controversial areas because children generally uh, might acquire this, but uh, really uh, do not get uh, ill with great severity as much as older adults and of course, uh, people with uh, health problems. But as uh, immunization has been occurring and also natural immunity, I think the virus has taken advantage uh, of uh, people that do not have any immunity. And of course, that's really shifting the curve to younger populations. And I think school, uh, schools and masks and social mitigation have been such flashpoints here. Maddie, what's your sense with the Delta variant, especially now representing over 99% of uh, sequenced vi virus in August and now September, uh, what are you uh, sort of seeing in the uh, signals from uh, uh, in the United States, but perhaps worldwide as well in the, in the uh, pediatric population? Um, so what, what we really are seeing is a spike in pediatric cases, particularly um, as kids have headed back to school, we're seeing higher rates of transmission among this population. Um, one thing that we're really seeing is that rising vac vaccination rates, as you alluded to, are driving the rollback of public health policies intended to limit the spread of COVID-19. So we don't have mask mandates to the same degree. Um, capacity limits have been um, taken back as well, um, which is putting those who are unvaccinated at increased risk of infection. And this includes, unfortunately, those under 12 who aren't eligible to currently receive the vaccine. And then, as you've also alluded to, um, the Delta variant is certainly driving the spike in pediatric cases as well. We know that it's particularly contagious, that it spreads much faster than other variants. Um, and this situation is particularly bad, of course, in areas where children can't be protected by their community, where we know that um, adults are not vaccinated in high rates, where mask adherence is low, and where we can't really um, rely on um, herd immunity or the protection of adults to lower the transmission among the, the population of children. Um, and unfortunately, the other thing that I think we have to reflect on is that this is particularly poorly timed um, because hospitals are already strained due to an upsurge of other illnesses, such as RSV, for example, um, which had been almost eliminated when we were wearing masks, but has now come back um, with quite a vengeance. Yeah, so uh, I'm 
you know, often fielding questions, for example, and people are very aware that different countries have taken different approaches with regards to children in Europe, children often in the UK, Denmark, yes, aren't required to wear masks and so on. In fact, there's been very little emphasis on immunizing children as opposed to the United States. What do you think accounts for some of these differences? And does that sort of bolster the arguments that really we shouldn't be as worried about children here? Or is it really just community transmission and uh, those issues, especially since we're a lower immunized nation uh, compared to Europe now, which is sort of leapfrogged ahead of us? Uh, I'm just sort of wondering on your perspectives, because I think a lot of people will say countries are doing this. I don't understand why we're not. So I think it, this is a, it's a multifaceted response. Um, I think that it is so interesting. I love tracking what each country is doing and how they've chosen to respond. Um, but I think if we're hoping to protect children, then we can't approach this from just one angle. I mean, the first piece has to be um, public health prevention measures, such as vaccines, um, adults wearing masks, obviously good hygiene. Um, but interestingly, as you said, COVID-19 remains a fairly low risk for children in terms of actually contracting COVID. Um, and then in terms of the severity of what kids experience, if they do get COVID, we see it's generally mild disease in most of um, the um, pediatric population. Um, and we know that about 50% of kids who actually get COVID will be asymptomatic and less than 2% of known pediatric COVID cases have resulted in hospitalization. So I think you know, of course, there's not zero risk and we want to protect these children, but I think it is reassuring to parents that the risk to children does remain fairly low. Um, with Delta surging, some people have tried to say that more recent hospitalizations means that Delta is worse for children um, and so that we should perhaps be uh, more concerned than we had been, but we really don't have evidence to support this. And I think this gets back to um, the using examples from the UK, for example, as you mentioned, um, where they've had a spike of Delta long before we did. If we look at their numbers, um, because our data are just still so um, sparse and it's still such a new problem here, um, we can use them as a template of sort of what to expect. And if we look at the UK numbers, um, we see that during their spike, hospitalization rates were actually similar among children during Delta as compared to during previous um, spikes. So I don't think we have reason to believe that Delta is more dangerous for children. And I think because of that, the UK between the Delta not being necessarily um, more dangerous and the children generally not getting um, severe illness, they haven't felt the need to mandate these masks the same way that we've chosen to here. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting because influenza, of course, can make children more ill uh, on a on a uh, per capita basis than uh, for COVID-19. But yet there are some people that uh, develop uh, MISC, for example, or, or perhaps have post-COVID conditions, you know, uh, post-infectious fatigue syndrome and these sorts of things. What, it is what, so rare, which I think is yeah. really another piece of information that I, I think puts parents at ease is it's interesting, the messaging and the branding around COVID, um, of course, it's something that we need to um, show a lot of concern for. But if you actually look at the numbers, the rate of death due to influenza in previous years among children is higher than that of COVID. Um, so, you know, I think parents 
so many parents have shut their lives down completely and are just afraid to even leave the house. But what I remind people is that the reality is we, we've always accepted risk of illness. We've always accepted that there's a small risk of severe illness or even death for children. This is not a new thing. Um, it's just the first time that in a long time that we've been taught to um, just hold so much fear. Yeah, I, I, obviously, I, I think there's always messages that are perhaps over leveraged. But if you're being honest um, and and you want to try to help clinicians uh, address uh, parental concerns, I'm wondering if you could sort of balance a little bit of what we just talked about that are the very real but uh, very low risks of serious illness in the pediatric population versus immunizations, which uh, you know, perhaps myocarditis and pericarditis is the one that's gotten the most attention, but the FDA has decided to expand the um, trials in children, for example. So will we really have sufficient safety there? And again, trying to balance those risks versus what we do for rubella. I mean, we immunize boys. There's no reason to immunize boys, but we're trying to decrease community rates to protect uh, women from developing congenital malformations. So uh, I, I sort of look at this where there is a paradigm for immunizing people to protect a segment of society, even if they don't directly benefit. So uh, what I, I sort of look at all this and, and it's, it's, you know, if I had a parent with a five and eight year old and I'm trying to weigh all this, and of course, we'll have some information from the FDA, which we can only hypothesize at the moment. But assuming that um, they're going to go ahead and give maybe emergency use authorization and eventually full approval, even so, um, uh, how do you think uh, we as a society should, should or shouldn't immunize children? Well, I think that there are many known benefits in vaccinating children overall, um, and it's no different when we speak about COVID. Um, the vaccine will offer protection from getting COVID. It will prevent the spread of the virus, um, which I think is beneficial to the community at large. And I think the other piece that's really important is that vaccinating children and just vaccinating the population more broadly helps eliminate the emergence of other variants, um, which of course is of concern as well. Um, and then, you know, it's obviously it's too soon to say right now, um, what the clinical trial data will indicate, but I'm confident that the FDA will thoroughly examine the available data before deciding whether to issue this emergency authorization for children. Um, and then, of course, that they'll continue to monitor the vaccines carefully for any signs of safety issues. Uh, and the myocarditis thing, of course, does continue to come up. But as you said, they've expanded the clinical trials um, in order to be able to detect occurrences of, um, of this, as well as other rare side effects. Um, but even with myocarditis, what we've seen in the adolescent population and in the adult population is that uh, it's a very rare occurrence. And, and if it does occur, then almost all cases are mild and resolve quickly. Um, so I think that uh, there's not a huge cause for alarm there, um, and that the trials among children um, are designed to, to test for and to detect these rare side effects. So um, I think that parents can really rest easy knowing that although it's an emergency, emergency authorization, um, everything is being done to try to ensure the safety of our children. Yeah, and I was encouraged by some Israeli data that uh, looked uh, among uh, uh, unimmunized as well as immunized and found the myocarditis risk for about 18-fold higher in unimmunized and only 3.4 uh, 
uh, as a result of immunizations. So uh, again, I think you know the acquiring the disease might still place you at far higher risk for this particular complication, which, as you point out, at least in the vaccine-induced, uh, seem to be infrequent. You know, one to five cases per hundred thousand. So the the risks um, seem to be quite low. But of course, the monitoring is ongoing. Uh, is there anything special that you see likely happening in the under 12 set with the immunization schedules? Will it be dosed differently? Will there be a reduction in dosing? And, and of course, each of these three current vaccines all have different characteristics to them. So as of right now, um, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are still being tested as a two-dose vaccine, um, although some preliminary data um, that I reviewed actually suggested that even after the first dose, um, children were showing um, production of antibodies um, and, and there was a good indication that they would have some protection against the virus even just after one. So who knows what the actual recommendation will be at the conclusion of the trial. Um, but Pfizer did just announce that they expect to release their trial data for six month to five year olds as early as the end of October. Um, and that they've said that for children five to 11, it will probably be even sooner, maybe even by the end of this month, um, the end of September. So I think um, things are actually moving pretty rapidly right now. And the next step, of course, is for the FDA to review the clinical trial data and decide whether they're going to issue the emergency authorization. Um, but I saw a, several statements from leadership um, within the FDA saying that it would be weeks rather than months before they would determine whether they would issue the authorization. Um, so I think it's really promising. I know parents are anxious and really itching to get their children vaccinated, um, especially now that kids are in school, parents want to get those protective measures in place. And it seems like it could happen for some kids um, as early as the fall and for younger kids, maybe by the end of the year. Yeah, and I've heard stories of 10 and 11 year olds being passed off as 12 year olds, of course, to, to get that immunization. Um, and of course, there are others which are in the, the uh, no vaccine camp as well. Uh, what, what, um, what other issues have you heard about either in prevention or treatment for children that have sort of come up? Uh, because, of course, we just have less experience in these age groups, but yet, especially some children who have uh, serious health problems are the ones that we end up seeing in our children's hospitals. Um, I think certainly there's evidence that children who are, and this is, comes to no surprise, as no surprise to anyone, but children that already have underlying health conditions are just at greater risk um, and need to be protected the most. So I think that um, parents who have children that meet that criteria are um, probably the most anxious at this point in time. Um, in terms of other questions that I'm seeing from parents, I think the, the major one is just how likely are we to spread or to bring home COVID to our children, even if we are vaccinated. Um, and I think there's just so much uncertainty in this area. We obviously know that there are breakthrough cases, even among the vaccinated. Um, and in those breakthrough cases, it's possible for transmission to occur. Um, but it does seem that transmission is less likely once you've been vaccinated, um, probably just because of lower viral loads. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we need to understand this question better and it's gonna continue to be something that causes some anxiety and alarm among parents knowing that if they go out and are doing their jobs or just living their day-to-day -day lives, they could be the ones that actually bring the virus into their own home. And of course, uh, children also can infect uh, 
parents at risk and so on. And we've seen that in a number of reports where uh, um, children who are unimmunized, such as the Marin County example, you know, from yes. a teacher, uh, half the classroom was infected and then they brought it all home and so on. So just speaking to the potential that the Delta variant has for uh, community transmission. In this current school year, Maddie, uh, people of course have shifted largely to um, uh, back in person learning. However, at the same time, we're hearing about outbreaks in schools, schools closing, shifting to virtual learning. Um, of course, it's always hard to judge when you hear these news reports because they're, they're a story here, a story there. Do we have anything from a larger perspective of uh, what's happening with the Delta variant and uh, back to school? So the data that we have from the last school year suggests very low risk of transmission in the school setting. But granted, that was not including the Delta variant. Um, so I think the best evidence that we have, again, pulls on data from the UK where the Delta variant has already existed. Um, and we see that transmission still seems very low in childcare and school settings. The positive test rate for children up to age 11 was around 2%, even at the height of the Delta surge. Um, so I think that the chance that a child um, gets COVID in childcare or at school is very low, despite what anecdotal evidence might suggest. Um, and so I think hopefully that's also a point of uh, comfort for parents that they can send their kids into these settings without having to be overly concerned. Well, perhaps in closing, I'll ask you to gaze into your crystal ball. Uh, do you feel the, the uh, COVID-19 vaccines will be mandated uh, for attending schools. We've already seen that at many universities, uh, for example, and of course that's an older population. Uh, do you think this will join the legion of other uh, vaccines that are essentially mandatory, such as measles, bumps, and rubella, uh, for attending public schools? That's such a great question and such a loaded question. Um, <laughs> of course, <that's laughs> I, I certainly important. hope so. Um, I think that you know that's the first step in, in really um, eliminating the uh, presence of COVID-19 in the population. Um, obviously it's so politicized, so it's really hard to say how it's gonna play out at the moment, but I'm glad to see that there's um, a lot of support across the country to mandate vaccination um, in, in the school setting and some support at the national level as well. So um, I think if we look at um, offices, like national offices where the vaccine has been mandated, transmission rates are so consistently lower. Um, so there's a lot of encouraging evidence that this is the best next step. Well, thanks so much. Uh, your insights uh, uh, into the issues regarding um, uh, childhood COVID-19 and also prevention and treatment areas there, uh, really helpful. And uh, hopefully the advice will be useful for your patients. I really want to thank you for listening and, and to uh, Dr. Maddie Travers for uh, sharing uh, your uh, knowledge and opinions today. Thank you all for your time. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Dr. Allwater and Dr. Travers for that really valuable information today. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.